metabolic adaptation, adaptive thermogenesis, metabolic compensation, or metabolic damage. These terms are thrown around a lot online and are used to describe everything from the person who starves themselves but still can't lose body fat to the person who suddenly rebounds in body fat in the weeks after a race. The process that occurs when people underfuel their training and even when we're looking at the limits of human endurance and how much calories can you actually expend in a day. But what exactly is metabolic adaptation and how big is the effect really? How much of it is based on science as opposed to the stories that we like to tell ourselves and are proliferated online? And what does all of this mean for you and your training? Well, let's find out. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. Sort of stuff that you're talking about out on your run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping online to find answers for. So we'll take that question, break it down and explain it in detail, inviting a guest expert, athlete or coach to add their perspective as well. Today it is episode 65. What is metabolic adaptation and is it important? With our special guest, Dr. Jose Areta. Before we get to Jose though, Steph, how are you going this week? I'm going good, Our going good. Um, yeah. Going good now anyway. Yeah, exactly. I um I think I managed to run away from COVID long enough and um <clears throat> eventually it caught me and it seems like it's leaving this kind of snuffly thing still, even though I'm negative now. So please don't be scared of hanging out with me people. But um yeah. So yeah, that was a pleasurable experience. Um yeah. <laughs> Otherwise just just ticking along what are we hour we're week 11. So um yeah, we're nearly there. We're nearly there at the end of the semester, which I'm kind of looking forward to. Um which I'm sure you are too. How how's things going with you? Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, as you said, sort of wrapping up the semester. But I learned a new food and nutrition term this week that I'd never heard before, Steph. Yeah. I'm sure some of the listeners have probably heard it, but it was new to me anyway. Yeah. So I was talking to a new client the other week and we were talking about what they do when they get home from work before dinner. And they said, oh, yeah, usually I, I do this and this and this, but then sometimes I go to the cupboard and he said, my wife told me this term, I have a snacksident. A snacksident. Yeah. <laughs> Like a like a snack accident or something? Basically, yeah. <laughs> when you're having a snack that you didn't intend to eat, but you find yourself eating it anyway. <laughs> nice. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd never heard that one before. <laughs> Neither. But then I Googled I it and there's plenty of examples online. Oh, so wow. yeah. we're behind the times now. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Us Masters athletes. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, updates and announcements, Al, what's happening with your study recruitment? Yeah, no, it's it's been ironically good because we've got the students who've been involved with that study who have to finish up for the semester as they finish their involvement with it. But just as they finish, we've got a whole flurry of people wanting to do the study. 
but we can't get them in now because you know we're kind of done for the year but we're not finished with the study so we are continuing we will continue into next year now so we can't run it over the summer because the weather's too warm anyway. We don't want people heat acclimatised or heat acclimated or, you know, going from non-acclimated to acclimated halfway through the study because it kind of mucks up all the results. So mm. we'll get going again once it starts cooling down in kind of April, May next year. So people can still get in contact with us. They may have seen the the ad for it online. I had quite a bit of interest, yeah, as I said, in, in the last couple of weeks. Melbourne Marathon's on this weekend and that's kind of put oh, a spanner yeah. in the works because a lot of people were keen to do the study but then had to wait till after the marathon and, you know, a week or so of recovery. But unfortunately yeah. that's too late. So, yeah, yeah that, that's life. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. And just a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at the Long Munch on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. And today's episode hour, we're up to episode 65. Yeah. So our question is, what is metabolic adaptation and is it important with our special guest, Dr. Jose Areta? Now, some of you might be familiar with that name. Jose's been on the podcast previously on episode 9A, Do I Really Need to Carb Load? based on some of the work he'd done in in that space. But Jose these days is a lecturer in sports nutrition and metabolism at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. I feel like we've interviewed half their uh, department (laughs) over the last couple of years, Steph, but that's all right. Or their alumni, some of them moved on. But he was previously a researcher at the Norwegian School of Sports Sciences and before that was here in Melbourne where we actually met and completed his PhD in muscle metabolism and nutrition at RMIT University and the Australian Institute of Sport. So having said all of that, Jose's from Argentina originally, so he's very well-travelled, been all over the globe, northern and southern hemispheres, been all over the place. As well as, I guess, working in a purely scientific sense, Jose's also a cycling coach and has competed himself in the sport as well. And his current focus in terms of research is on the effects of low energy availability, which is that sort of concept of restricted calorie intake relative to your body's needs and the effect of that on metabolism and physiology, which is perfect for our discussion today because it plays perfectly into that concept of, you know, what is metabolic adaptation and you know, how much of it. Uh, takes place in what situation. So he's actually a, a co-author and that's why we, we wanted to speak to him on a recent paper for the Royal Society in London exploring whether the effect of an energy deficit that's caused by increased training volume is fundamentally different to the effects of an energy deficit that's caused by a reduction in the amount of calories or kilojoules that someone eats in their diet. So it's a really good paper. We're going to talk a bit about that during this discussion as well. Now, the final thing before we speak to Jose, I guess, is just a couple of definitions, some terms that are used in here that people may or may not be familiar with. We talk about a couple of different hormones. So Jose talks about endocrine markers. He's basically talking about hormones. One is leptin, which is a hormone, and he talks about it fluctuating in response to you know changes in the amount of energy that people eat, the amount of calories that you eat, and, and that relative to you know how much you're expending. So leptin um, is a hormone that can indicate body fat. So it goes up and down with body fat. So that's, I guess, the sort of the big background movement of leptin is up and down with, with body fat stores, but it also has these acute fluctuations in response to changes in you know, just the daily energy ins and outs as well, which is what we discuss here. He also talks about T3, which is a thyroid uh, hormone, so it has to do with thyroid function, and and the thyroid is involved with regulating, you know, sort of turning up and down the calorie expenditure of the total body, and so it changes sort of your resting metabolic rate 
which we'll, we'll get into as we go on. Uh, and then the final terms, which I'm sure most people are probably familiar with, but just in case you're not, I guess we're talking about energy intake is basically just the calories or kilojoules that you eat in the day. Energy expenditure, the calories or kilojoules you expend or burn in the day. And then energy availability, which is that concept of taking the calories you eat, removing the ones or assigning the ones to specifically to exercise that you've used in the muscle and then whatever's left over for the rest of your day-to-day bodily functions is what we call the energy availability so how much energy is available for those functions yeah unfortunately i couldn't join you on on this one but i was lucky enough to to get a bit of a 24-hour period early listening of it yeah that unfortunately i was unwell yeah no that's fine All right, well, let's get into this and have a listen to Jose. Jose Areta, welcome back to The Long Munch. How are you going over there in the UK? Yeah, very good, Alan. We're having a belated uh, summer here, very much enjoying warmer days in spring. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we've just had this really topsy-turvy weather here, but I'm sure you don't miss the Melbourne weather back from your PhD days. Yeah, I don't. I didn't mind it that much. I don't think uh, it's much of a difference here in the UK. So yeah, it's, everything's pretty good, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Now, last time we spoke to you was way back, actually, in March 2021 on episode 9A of the podcast, and the topic then was, "Do I really need to carb load?" And it has been, I've got to say, one of our more popular episodes in terms of you know number of downloads, which is great. But last time when you did that podcast, you mentioned that at that stage, you were starting to do a lot more work around kind of low energy availability in the year since. And is that pretty much what you've been up to in the last two, two and a half years? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much since I started my my lectureship here at uh, Liverpool John Moores University is what I've been focusing on. Of course, things got delayed because of COVID and so on, our research, but, you know, in sort of building the foundations on that, that topic more and more. Of course, I've got more more years of experience than the work that I've been doing here, but uh, yeah, pretty much focus on that. Yeah, awesome. Okay. And today's topic around this concept of sort of metabolic adaptation, which is maybe kind of related to that, we'll get into that shortly, but I guess it came came up from, from Steph and my perspective for a couple of different reasons. Firstly, you know, it's something that's always in the back of my mind in terms of that concept of low energy availability that we just mentioned there and REDS and the issues of sort of underfueling in athletes and, you know, to what extent does energy expenditure reduce when you're sort of faced with that lack of calories compared to, you know, the, the energy you're expending during training. And on the higher end, you know, elite athletes do you know, very large volumes of training and then looking at, well, what's the upper limit to sort of energy that can be eaten and calories expended. And you know, I was reading Herman Ponce's book, Burn, over the summer holiday, and it sort of talks about that topic as well. So there's a few different angles I think we can kind of look at this metabolic adaptation sort of concept from. But the other thing that happened in, in terms of you know, your involvement in this topic Firstly, I was watching a recording of a Royal Society meeting in London about this time last year, actually, discussing different aspects of overweight and obesity, actually. And after one of those sessions, and I'm pretty sure it was the one on this topic, sort of around metabolic adaptation or metabolic compensation, it panned to the crowd who were asking questions. I'm like, oh, there's Jose in the crowd asking questions. That's cool. It's like Wild Dog, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then and then more recently you've actually been a co-author with one of the presenters from there in a paper for the Royal Society discussing whether adaptations to underfueling 
in terms of you know the metabolic response are different depending on whether the underfueling is caused by increased training or by you know dietary restriction or reduced caloric intake or some combination of those. So I guess the first question after a very long-winded preamble there in terms of that paper and how that came about was that because of that Royal Society meeting or is it just a coincidence that they're both connected to the Royal Society? I suppose it was a, a combination of of factors. It's the fact that I've been working in this topic for, for a little while and Lewis had published not long before a study on metabolic compensation and it was like basically he approached the topic from a more of a pure biology sort of standpoint, you know, where we work in this topic from a different standpoint, more, more focused on athletes and, and so on. And of course, I have a background in biology and my, my training and an undergraduate is as a zoologist. And I very much appreciate that world and see how, how rich it is in terms of what, how it can contribute to, to this area. And um, I read his paper and I was like, oh, look, he's basically saying a lot of the same things that we're saying for, for athletes, but just using like completely different literature. And this is so interesting. This is great. So I reached out to him and, you know, we started talking and then he had this meeting, his talk, this talk in the Royal Society which I had the, the, the privilege to, to attend. Yeah, and then, you know, they, they had to write paper about sort of the topic that they were presenting on. And you, then because we had all these like viewpoints in, in common, it was like, okay, let's, let's, let's write about this, you know, that we've been discussing for, for a little while. And yeah, that's how it came to happen, really. The, the story behind the paper, I think every paper has, has a story behind, doesn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's always, or, you know, quite often they're really interesting stories too. So it sounds like, yes, it was directly related to that meeting in terms of the paper was related to his presentation at that meeting. Yes. Yeah. Cool. All right. So we're talking today about this concept of metabolic adaptation, or some people would talk about sort of metabolic compensation. So I guess the obvious question before we dive into the evidence and, and obviously look at the practical implications, because that's what's most important for listeners, I guess firstly is exactly what do we actually mean by this term of metabolic adaptation? Well, I suppose that different people would mean different things using the, the same term. I can talk about how we define it in that study that you're making reference to. So one of the things that we're interested in seeing is how the body responds to, to energy deficit and whether, you know, the, the response to energy deficit to, to be able to uh, survive in a state of low energy availability, you know, what, what the body actually does. There's a number of things that the body change, you know, when you don't put enough energy in it, there's behavioral changes, and then there's metabolic changes. And in this case, metabolic adaptation, we define it as the change or reduction in this case of energy expenditure that is more than you would expect to see just by the reduction in the amount of tissue. You know, when you are in energy deficit, you lose mass, you lose weight from the different tissues. So there's a contribution of fat-free mass and there's a contribution of fat mass, typically in a ratio to, of three to one. So three of units of whatever units you want to use, you know, here in the UK, you want to use stones or something like that. And then if you're in the rest of the world, you know, probably use like kilograms, maybe in the US you use like pounds and stuff. So three to one, three parts of fat mass, one part of fat-free mass. And so because that tissue uses energy, if you diminish the amount of 
tissue that you have in your body, then you're going to use less energy. But that's not what we refer to metabolic adaptation. Metabolic adaptation in this case would be the reduction of the metabolic activity of the tissue, independent of the change in the amount of tissue, which basically is signaling that you know the, the tissue becomes less metabolically active. It's using less energy than it would otherwise use if you had enough energy to maintain the normal function of that tissue. And there's obviously potentially different parts to energy expenditure. Are you specifically referring here to the energy we expend at rest when we're not doing any kind of movement? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. No, that's fine. And I think we'll come back a little bit later and talk about maybe those other components of energy expenditure in terms of movement, whether it's conscious or sort of that kind of involuntary movement side of things a little bit later on. But I, what I wanted to ask you about firstly, though, was the different terminologies that are sometimes used here. So we've used that term metabolic adaptation. As I said before, some people might say metabolic compensation. Uh, if you look online, you might see things like adaptive thermogenesis, or even if you go into the, like the bodybuilding side of things, they'll refer to metabolic damage, quote unquote, as this thing that happens You know, when they really... I guess, starve themselves heading into competition to get as lean as possible for, for competition day. Now, obviously, you know, the sort of runners, cyclists and triathletes we're talking about hopefully are not going into that sort of calorie deficit and trying to get that lean like a bodybuilder is, but there may be similar adaptations, maybe not quite as extreme. But would these? would you say that these terms, I mean, obviously different people use different terms, but are they all kind of different ways of explaining the same thing or are we talking about actually different things here? I think that you know you need to be careful when you are using all those different types of terminologies is that they might be referring to different things. You know, some, some of them might refer to, for example, the change in total daily energy expenditure, which is a, which is a different thing, right? So when, when mm. you think about uh, you go into an energy deficit, then your total daily energy expenditure, you know, at, let's say everything else remaining equal, you change, you don't purposefully change the, the amount of exercise that you do and, and so on, your total daily energy expenditure is going to change, it's going to be reduced. And that's because of a number of factors, right? You have behavioral factors, people tend to move less, so less feeling and so on. There's a reduction in tissue. So as I was saying before, there's less energy expenditure from that and appears to be that there's a little bit of a component as well from the metabolic activity of, of, that, of that tissue, right? Yeah. And also, you know, during movement, also people might become a little bit more efficient. So they are doing the same amount of activity, but they are like slightly more efficient. So they're using less energy for the type of activity that they're doing. So all these things might contribute to a reduction in the total daily energy expenditure. So here, what we are referring to in, you know, by the use of um, metabolic adaptation is specifically to the change in metabolic activity of different tissues. Yep. Okay. And you've mentioned the words sort of energy availability a little bit already, and that that that's kind of involved in this to to an extent. You also mentioned before that you know Lewis, who'd done that presentation at the obesity meeting for the Royal Society, he was coming at it with, you know, completely different, I guess, sets of studies that he was looking at in terms of evidence and may, maybe from the non-athletic point of view, whereas in the athletic context, we talk about energy availability. The adaptations as you see them, 
does that difference matter? Like, do the the terms that we use and you know, energy availability is that just part of the same picture, or do you see that as something completely separate? Yeah, well, that's that is a great question. I'm gonna try to tackle that question the best the best I can to try to bring uh, clarity in this topic. In the sports science, sports nutrition group of people, you know, us, we think of energy availability in a, in a very very clear definition that is basically the amount of energy available from dietary energy intake after subtracting exercise energy expenditure normalized to fat-free mass. So that's the, the simplest sort of definition. So there is a strong focus on the exercise energy expenditure and the fat-free mass, and then what energy is available to maintain normal physiological function. If you don't have enough energy because you didn't intake enough energy or because you increase exercise energy expenditure, that's going to result in, you know, your body going into some sort of sort of adaptive thermogenesis or metabolic adaptation, however you define it. So if you don't have enough energy, you're going to drop weight, you know, for for a little while, and then your body's going to adapt to this energy deficit, and then you're weight is going to probably weight loss is probably going to plateau eventually because you're going to have all these um, adaptations that are going to make your body be you know more efficient with the use of energy that you're putting into every day Mm -hmm. yep okay and so i guess there's been a lot of conjecture over the years about this concept of metabolic adaptation both in terms of your athletes and and maybe non-athletes as well and you hear those reports of the person who says oh, i i eat 1200 calories a day and you know that's less than theoretically maybe what their resting metabolic rate should be so just the amount of calories they're expending just doing that literally nothing and yet they say well i still can't lose body fat even eating 1200 calories a day and then you have those people that say that well i wasn't losing any body fat but then i started eating more calories and you know i quote unquote kickstarted my metabolism or some term like that and all of a sudden i did start losing body fat and then you've got athletes who did maybe an extra 10 hours a week of training all of a sudden but didn't see any change in their body composition or and, and then you, you have those those athletes who report, you know, a lower than predicted metabolic rate when it's actually measured in the lab or they have really cold hands and feet can sometimes be associated with that and things often related to that low energy availability. And I, I guess some people kind of say, well, yeah, these are these are real adaptations and they're really big and significant. Others say, well, you know, the adaptations are actually really small and subtle and, and there's probably more kind of explaining all of this or people are just kidding themselves or, or other people about you know how much they really eat or how much they really train uh, so I'm, I'm interested in in your take on this and i know you do a lot of work around measuring metabolic rate as well so i'm interested in your thought about to what extent you think metabolic adaptation actually happens and if you think the i guess the idea that athletes generally have about this is kind of over exaggerated or paradoxically maybe underappreciated like where do you kind of feel we're at with metabolic adaptation and and the athlete's understanding of that and and how big an effect is it really yeah it's it's difficult to answer because it's it's very difficult to study this Mm. Uh, but i can tell you about you know the some of the evidence that we have and and my thoughts um also i want to clarify here when we're talking about 
um, metabolic adaptation here. Now I'm going to refer to like all, all the adaptations that result in a reduction in total daily energy expenditure. So one of the things that is difficult, you know, to, why it's difficult to, to re reply to this question specifically is because it's very difficult to study. So when we sort of change the amount of energy available to, to, to someone, just sort of tracking, you know, how much energy they're expending per day and, and so on. But I'm going to make reference to, to a study that's probably the, the best example that this actually does happen. It's a bit of an extreme example, uh, but it gives sort of an evidence, gives very clear evidence that, well, it, it, it is a thing. And this is the Minnesota starvation experiment from, you know, the Second World War. This study happened around like 1945. Classic study. Yeah, classic study got published in 1950. And basically what, you know, the, the, the background of this study is that there was all these famines in Europe because of the Second World War and people were like starving and they wanted to see what was the best way of refeeding people after starvation. But for that, they needed to sort of starve people basically. And so they had a number of uh, male subjects that volunteered for this study and they put them for 24 weeks. So six months of reduced energy intake for about like 45%. And they were still like moving and doing like volunteer work and, you know, physical work and so on. And so by the end of the 24 weeks, there was a reduction in body weight of about 25%. So the total daily energy expenditure was reduced from remember correctly it was from around three and a half thousand work kilocalories per day to about you know i think two thousand kilocalories per day or something like that i don't remember the, the exact numbers but it was massive right mm. so there was a massive reduction in in in, in body weight you know ima imagine someone that was like 70 kilos would turn like 52 kilos by the end of the intervention and there was a, a reduction in, in, in the amount of movement that they were doing during the day and, and so on. <clears throat> and there was a reduction in, you know, the size of organs and, 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 and stuff. So there was a, a reduction in the overall, uh, like the total daily energy expenditure of individuals. So if you see that body weight at the beginning of those 24 weeks, the, the decrease of body weight is quite steep. And as they're getting closer to the end of intervention, the, the body weight plateau. So there's no they're not in energy deficit anymore at the end. Uh, so this is an, ex an, an extreme example, right, of someone who's like chronically been semi-starved and there's a range of adaptations, you know, from, from behavioral to body weight to metabolic adaptation that makes someone, even though they are having the same amount of energy and it's very, very low to decrease, so that the, the, body, the body weight loss is not any longer evident so that they reach them some sort of plateau and that's possibly one of the reasons why you know it's kind of hard to lose weight after you've lost a, a number of, of kilos of of of, uh, of of weight so what you're mentioning just before you know an athlete or an individual saying that they eat these many calories and they stop losing weight at some point like it doesn't surprise me at all uh, of course, as you're very much aware, there's a lot of errors of assessment of energy intake. So there's a lot of the time there's under-reporting. So we know that from, you know, systematic analysis and under-report systematically, this is, you know, independent of the, 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 the random error. So 
you know, keeping keeping that in mind, I think it's important to know well how much energy someone is actually having to to know what, what, what's what's going on with their energy balance sort of thing. But the thing is that there might be a lot of things going on in someone's body that make them use less energy from them, you know, moving less in, throughout the day to being a little bit more efficient in the use of energy to being using less energy when they are resting. So all these things add up and they possibly can result in someone, you know, losing less weight than they would otherwise want to. Yeah. Okay. And I guess if we think about this in the context specifically of athletes now, do you think there's enough good evidence to show that resting metabolic rate does decline when people are in that state of low energy availability? That is a good question. Let's think about cross-sectional studies, right? Cross-sectional studies, uh, observational data showing that the athletes that would have more indices of what we call energy preservation, so all the things that I mentioned before, will tend to have a lower resting metabolic rate. So it seems that a small reduction in, in resting metabolic rate relative to the actual fat-free mass that is, is quite evident. Now, th there are a number of issues with, with this. First of all, the differences are, are not like massive, right? If your resting metabolic rate is under 90% of you, what you would expect from a predictive formula, then that's an indicator of uh, some sort of metabolic adaptation. So there is a, a bit of evidence for this mechanistically is you know, it's not that clear, like what, what is going on there and what, what, what is really happening. It seems that potentially some tissues might be less metabolically active. And, you know, in this, in this case, it's typically is associated with like lower T3 hormone, which is a very, very important hormone to regulate rest, uh, resting metabolic rate. So for example, there are studies showing that if you put someone in weight loss, uh, T3 decreases, leptin decreases. Resting metabolic uh, rate decreases. These are non-athletes, by the way. And then when you, or when they inject, you know, T3, then there's the, the resting metabolic rate is sort of rescued. So it seems to be some evidence to support that that, that that is the case. So T3 for listeners is to do with thyroid function. Yeah. So T3 can be an indicator of like thyroid function. So, you know, if you have like clinical values that are too high or too low, can tell you that there's something wrong with your thyroid, but there's also a, a branch of thyroid that is physiological, that is in response to different metabolic states. And so what I think is important to think is that our body sort of adapts to energy deficit. And this is like an adaptive response. So it's not necessarily pathological, right? Um, and this is something that we have to keep in mind. Our bodies have adapted through millions of years of evolution to be able to survive periods of like low energy availability and famines and, and so on. So in that, in that context, these are ad adaptive responses. This is, not, this is not pathological. People in the sports science, sports nutrition world tend to think it is pathological because it's associated to things that might result in negative consequences like stress fractures and so on. But uh, going back to uh, what I was saying before, so yeah, T3 is an, an important regulation, regulator of sort of metabolic activity like overall metabolic uh, activity. And we see that is typically associated with like a lower uh, resting metabolic rate. And one of the things that we don't really know what happens with, with, with these athletes is, for example, what happens with their organ sizes. These are their organ sizes smaller than, you know, 
people who are not going through this and maybe the adaptation that we think that it is, oh, there's a, a, now a, a reduction in the metabolic activity of the tissues is simply because there's, well, just the, the tissue, the, 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 the organs are smaller. And why I'm making reference to organs, you know, uh, muscle, for example, is the fact that they are very metabolically active, right? They are like, you know, a, a few fold different in terms of like the metabolic activity of like kidneys, for example, or brain and, you know, liver and so on. They are a lot more metabolically active at rest than muscle is. So small changes in the size of these tissues can have a very significant contribution in the, uh, in the, the changes in, in resting metabolic rate. So I think this is important that, you know, we kind of keep in mind on like what, what is going on because it might be just some organs become a little bit smaller, but I don't think we have like solid evidence uh, for that. But, you know, long story short, based on what you said, yeah, there's quite a bit of evidence showing that there's an association, which does not imply causation between people that have markers of chronic low energy availability and lower resting metabolic rate. And the cutoff value of 90% is typically used for, to define whether someone might be exposed to chronic low energy availability. But, you know, there are some issues also in which what formulas you use and, and so on. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that, that I've noticed, you know, maybe five to eight years ago, maybe it was pretty common when someone had a stress fracture, for example, you know, sound the alarm on the energy availability Let's go and have a DEXA. Let's go and have a resting metabolic rate test. And what you'd see when they had the RMR test is by the time they had the tests, it was, you know, two or three weeks post-fracture. And, of course, they've stopped training completely and their resting metabolic rate is well and truly within, you know, sort of the predicted range with a few exceptions. Have you sort of come across that yourself so so maybe like if you are going to measure that you've got to kind of catch it in the act so to speak like at the time that there's actually low energy availability if you wait two or three weeks after someone stopped training because of injury or illness or something it may be back to normal anyway yeah that that is a great question and i think it's is um not that we're talking about this we have to think about you know how different physiological systems respond to energy deficit there is a time course of different physiological systems res responding at like different speeds, right? So there are some parameters that change like very, very quick. For example, leptin is very sensitive. Leptin like drops like a lead balloon, like in, within a day, just bang, goes down. And you think about, you know, T3 responds quite quick as well, you know, between like two or three days, like T3 goes down. It depends how severe you are with the energy deficit. But then resting metabolic rate, response might not be that quick you know you see first you know, early response hormone changes then this sort of signal something to the body you know this sort of has a, there's a downstream effect that i suppose is some sort of like cumulative effect and till the time you you see the rmr change it might take like a little bit longer so that's why it's hard to also say there's there, there's a causal effect between these things because the majority of the studies are quite short the, the, the ones that are well controlled, they are quite short and it might take a little bit longer for you to see differences. You know, maybe it takes like 10 days or 20 days. So like the, the, the most studies that are short, also they don't have, haven't measured that often, mm. right? You have early changes in T3, leptin, uh, markers of bone formation, markers of bone resorption, and then 
RMR takes longer to change. And then until you see a change in bone mineral density, it takes a lot longer. You know, if you more if you're using DEXA, even though DEXA has been developed to look at bone mineral density, it still would take months until you are able to differentiate from that. And so you get a stress fracture typically after exposure of like months or years of, of not eating enough energy. And then, as you're saying, you know, you, you pick up the stress fracture and then you go to measure RMR. But, you know, even maybe you measure RMR the day the person's got the stress fracture, but that week they've had had like more energy. And then for whatever reason, you know, the resting metabolic rate came back up. We see, you know, there's an increase in resting metabolic rate. Also, if you're having like eating like a lot of energy, we see that with um, combat sports athletes, for example, where, you know, they go into this weight making phase of between, you know, typically between, I don't know, seven and 10 weeks and you measure resting metabolic rates, it goes down. And then after the, the fight, they just eat a lot. The weight basically goes back. Uh, very quick to what it was before the weight loss and then you measure resting metabolic rate and resting metabolic rate is, is quite high only a few days after the fight mm. so uh, it goes up in the, in the opposite direction as well it goes it goes up if you are eating a lot more than you typically do if you're in an energy surplus and there must be inter-individual variation in this as well some people are more more sensitive it seems to the the, the over fueling kind of thing and how they adapt their resting metabolic rate and, and stuff so going back to what you're saying yes you gotta keep in mind that there's you know a timeline for different endocrine metabolic and physiological responses that you have to consider when you are thinking about what you're measuring to try to detect what you're trying to detect yeah okay and so there's i guess you know we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast in various episodes but there's two different ways i guess for a runner cyclist or triathlete to create that kind of state of low energy availability well three really so you could either have someone who increases their training load considerably but they don't eat anymore so you know whether that's deliberate or possibly unintentional underfueling, I guess, for the training load. Or you have the athlete who's deliberately restricting the calories they're eating, aiming for body fat loss. Maybe they haven't necessarily changed their training, so it's sort of a deliberate calorie restriction. Or, of course, you could have some sort of combination of those two. Now, the paper that we mentioned at the start, the Royal Society paper, I guess you looked at these two different scenarios and whether they're physiologically different or not, because obviously you do your energy availability calculation and, you know, doesn't matter which direction, you can end up with the same number, but you don't necessarily get the same physiological response. Can you sort of just briefly summarize, I guess, that the main take home from that is, are the responses the same if energy availability is low? From, you know, from either of those two changes or are there key differences that we need to think about or consider that might be relevant to athletes? Yeah, so I think we have to think this in, in the, following, the following way. So we have to think this on the sort of whole body resting metabolic rate change. So far, we don't have really evidence to show that if there is a reduction in RMR is different in, 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 in both scenarios. Then when we think about, for example, skeletal muscle, you see a stark difference between what an athlete that has been exposed chronically to low energy compared to that individual who is on an energy deficit but is not exercising. So when you, when you think that 
that you know that in, in, in that case even some adaptations might be the same functionally some tissues are like very very different so if you keep someone exercising while they are in energy deficit you have certain tissues and you know i can make reference to skeletal muscle that remain uh, meta more metabolically active and typically it maintains uh, the size or the size at least is not reduced uh, as much yeah so i guess to to put that together i guess what you're saying there is that the the quote-unquote metabolic adaptation should be relatively similar but training is still training and you're still going to get those kind of adaptive responses to training even in an energy deficit or, or an energy low energy availability maybe not as good as it would have been if the energy availability was better but certainly better than being in the same energy deficit and not training at all the current idea the predominant idea is that you know if you're in energy deficit then you are going to have impaired adaptations to to training I think it's important to consider the degree of energy deficit that you might have. You know, if you have very severe chronic energy deficit, that might be the case. And I'm here, not, I'm not advocating that energy deficit is necessarily a good thing, but we see, you know, a lot of top level athletes who compete at the highest level who have markers of chronic energy deficiency and they're still like mm. winning races at the, at the highest level. The evolutionary explanation that I sort of give to this is that locomotion is very important for survival in a state of energy deficit because it allows you to chase you know food you know we are we have adapted as uh, hunter-gatherers mainly throughout our evolution and you know chasing and collecting food is very important for for our survival so if you think that your foraging efficiency is decreased if you also decrease your capacity for locomotion and movement, then that means that your capacity to chase food might be impaired as well, which is probably not gonna allow you to, you know, get energy to survive basically. So in that sense, I think locomotion and physical capacity are what I call high priority energy allocation domains that when you don't have enough energy, you just, you know, your body pours energy towards that because it's going to increase at the expense of other systems, i.e., you know, reproductive function and, and so on, because these are not so immediately important for survival. So my point here being that we don't have enough evidence to say, you know, if someone is not having enough energy, how their physical performance is going to be affected. Eventually it will. You got to consider also, you know, the amount of carbohydrates that they're eating and, and so on. But you need to think that, you know, possibly it's not the first thing that is going to be affected if something is affected by energy deficit. So if you are waiting for your performance to decrease because of energy deficit and it being a, a, a sen sensitive marker of not having enough energy, maybe you're waiting a bit too late. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. I just wanted to, before we finish up on a couple of practical things, I just wanted to change direction a little bit, and that's to the extreme energy expenditure end of the spectrum. So this is, I guess, where you're talking maybe more about your ultra-endurance athletes or your, your multi-day things that are, you know, multiple hours of, of exercise as well. And I guess, you know, a lot of people might have read Herman Ponce's book, Burn, and he talks about that, his hypothesis, that kind of constrained energy expenditure models, kind of suggesting based on evidence in hunter-gatherers and, and a few other populations he's collected data in that you know the total amount of energy that humans can expend in a day or whatever 
period of time. You can stretch it out longer than a day to a week or a month or even longer. He uses pregnancy as an example of that at the sort of the longer duration end. You're somewhat constrained by the amount of food that we can eat, which may be limited to obviously the availability of food in some situations, but also possibly just our digestive systems and the capacity to digest and absorb nutrients from food. Do you think we have... You know, there has been some criticism around some of that data. There's obviously a lot of underlying assumptions with the use of, you know, doubly labelled water and things like that that are used in those studies. But do you feel like that is a model worth exploring in terms of, you know, what limits us at that upper end of sort of extreme ultra-endurance exercise? Yeah, well, I I wouldn't necessarily consider my expert on, on that. I mean, I've got my thoughts and I got my knowledge and of course I've read all these papers and and so on yeah I think it's fascinating the, the idea is even fascinating even if it's, it's it's right or wrong you know there's been a really nice um, study criticizing that and written by Javi Gonzalez that makes a, a few points there on the on the limitations of the the actual analysis and and so on um, so I think what Herman Ponser is proposing as 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 much as I understand it is the fact that this sort of metabolic ceiling of around 2.5 times the resting metabolic rate of an individual is set, you know, for quite prolonged periods of time. So it's mm. not just the one week or three weeks and, and so on, um, but it's like um, more mm. prolonged, prolonged period, periods of time. Um, and I think, you know, he uses like pregnancy as, a, as a, an example for that and, and, and so on. It is a possibility. Is it a possibility? Well, maybe. <laughs> yes. They talk about, you know, limitations in the capacity of the gut to absorb energy. If, and I think that possibly could be possibly a factor. I think for this factor to, to be considered, you need to also think about the energy density of the food that you're consuming. So I think, you know, one of the things that I do with endurance athletes that have high energy expenditure is get them to eat more energy dense foods for them to overcome their sometimes incapacity mm. for not eating enough. So what is healthy for an elite level athlete might not be healthy for for the, the, the average person because they need those sugars that are energy dense because they need, you know, to, to eat things that are not so fibrous and of course they need fiber and, and stuff, but this is something that is not really talked about that much in terms of like energy deficit and, you know, how eating a low energy um, density diet might lead to energy deficiency in some athletes. So I think that it, it might be a, a possibility, but, you know, it's, it's different the availability of food that someone in sort of sub-Saharan Africa might have in terms of like the energy density and, and so on, and the food that someone in a in an industrialized world would have in terms of like fats and uh, sugars and so on. So I think that possibly that model requires more research to be tested, which I'm sure is, is being done at the moment. But uh, I think it is a possibility. Yeah, why not? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and I guess you know, obviously, in that that hunter gatherer lifestyle, to consume more energy, you generally have to expend more energy to get the food in the first place. Where, and, and I think he makes that point in the book as well that you know, in a Western society, generally, you, you know, your the amount of calories you can consume isn't limited by the amount of energy that you have to expend to obtain them in the first place. 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, when we talk about a constraint of energy, we've we got to think about, you know, if, if it's the energy intake, the limitation, then the constraint is a constraint to energy availability, not necessarily because the energy expenditure itself is a, is a limiting factor. So it could be both. Yeah. You, we, we know from field studies on like populations that are like highly active, that they do like subsistence farming and, and, and hunter gathering and so on, that there's some markers at least of um, energy deficiency. You know, men tend to have like lower testosterone and, 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 and circulating testosterone and so on. So yeah, it might be the fact that they are just, they have a degree of metabolic adaptation and they are becoming more efficient in the, in the use of their energy, which would sort of support the um, viewpoint of um, this constraint model, but the constraint would be to energy availability rather than a ceiling of maximum energy expenditure. So what is yeah. interesting is that we tend to think of, how do you say, yeah, I don't know, but I, I never know if, you know, energy intake is a function of energy expenditure or energy expenditure is a function of energy intake. You know, you, you could make an argument for both. I mm. think we typically think as energy intake being a function of energy expenditure because that's what tends to happen. You know, people exercise more, they become more hungry, and then they, they, they compensate for increased exercise energy expenditure, which is why increasing energy expenditure typically, at least for the average person, is not a very effective strategy for weight loss. But then, you know, you can turn it upside down and like what we're saying now, well, maybe at higher levels of energy expenditure, then energy expenditure is a function of energy intake, which is, which is the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so just to finish up with, from a practical standpoint, so we've got listeners who are runners, cyclists, and triathletes, and I guess what they're thinking here is, you know, there's all this metabolic adaptation stuff. Is it relevant to me? Do I need to think about this? Do I need to consider this? What's the practical message from your perspective in all of this? Or is it just sort of a theoretical thing that we should be aware that exists, but, you know, apart from avoiding, you know, obviously that low energy availability, which we've talked about in other podcasts, is not something that they need to really occupy their thoughts on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, it's, it's, the, the system is complicated because many things change at the same time. I think, first of all, you, you just have to go back to whether you know you're you're, you're fueling your your exercise correctly that 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 that, that is that is the, the main the main thing whether you're you know i think you know you're working with a lot of athletes who are very weight conscious and uh, most endurance athletes want to be lighter because they associate being lighter with an increased power to weight ratio and so on so i think that before any other consideration you really really have to think long and hard on like what your perception is of your body weight and really if you need to lose any body weight because i'd say probably about 70 percent or more of your population that you work with subconsciously if not consciously they are thinking oh i should probably should be a little bit lighter these can be quite harmful in a range of ways you know from psychologically to physiologically to have that in, in mind so only after you've really thought about that and you think about whether you are you know it's worth for you to have any sort of energy deficit 
then you have to think about how to best approach it, possibly, you know, uh, doing some sort of a par paradise training to lose some weight for a specific race that has a lot of climbing or something like that might be uh, a good thing. Then, you know, for someone who's not so concerned about losing weight, but wants to know that, you know, their physiology is in tip-top shape and they are less likely to have some sort of injury or any sort of problem, you know, what things they can actually think about looking at to know if they have some sort of like metabolic adaptation and their body is not really responding as well as they should. If you think that, you know, you might have been chronically under fueling, you might want to have some sort of like DEXA of bone mineral density. If your bone mineral density is low, uh, it might be that it's a bit, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say like late, but you know, it's just an indicator this has been going on for, for quite a while. Uh, there are some markers, you know, for, for, for female athletes, the easiest thing is to look at the, 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 the frequency of the um, menstrual cycle. You know, if I work with a female athlete, this is one of the things that I just go straight away. Let's monitor your, your menstrual cycle. You know, if you're not taking any uh, control pills and, and, and so on, because this is really going to tell us like very, very valuable information that you have someone that has a normal menstrual cycle doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have some sort of menstrual dysfunction. They could still have a menstrual dysfunction, like, for example, an ovulation or luteal phase effect and so on. But if they have uh, oligomenorrhea, which is like not regular menstrual cycles or uh, amenorrhea, which is like complete lack of menstrual cycles, then, then there is a, a very sort of strong indicator that, well, something needs to be paid attention to here. Uh, again, you know, this doesn't mean that their performance necessarily is going to suffer in the short term because I don't think we really have that evidence to prove that. But, you know, if you think about like long-term health of this athlete, then you have to be very careful. You can do assessment of like some blood parameters, like as I was saying before, like maybe T3 is probably one of the most sensitive uh, indicators that are broadly assessed in like clinical settings. Leptin, you typically wouldn't, you wouldn't get a lab that as an assess assessment of leptin. Yeah, so uh, a number of things that you can be looking at to try to see if there's some sort of a metabolic adaptation, potentially if your body's uh, exposed to some sort of chronic uh, energy deficiency, more if you're female and you're, you're male and females seem to be more prone to uh, at least, you know, threefold as more prone as, as men to have stress fractures and possibly the ones that need to be paying more attention to this. All right, so just to finish up, I know we don't have time for bonus round, so I'm just going to ask you one question and you can give me a yes or no answer if you like. Last time we had you on the podcast, this was two and a half years ago, we asked you a sport that you wanted to try but you hadn't yet had the chance and you nominated either skydiving, base jumping or ski jumping. Have you managed to do any of these in the last two and a half years? <laughs> no, unfortunately not. I've been giving it a go to gymnastics lately and, you know, you, uh -huh. people cannot see it really, but I have a black eye at the moment because I hit myself like trying to learn to backflip, which I'm going to get there and I'm loving it, but I haven't that tried any more extreme things. I think the, the price to pay for skydiving going wrong is a lot higher than to gymnastics. So I'll stick to gymnastics for, for a little while and then if I get inspired, give uh, base jumping a, a go. 
Well, I was going to say you can go down that talent ID pathway, which is well-worn certainly here in Australia, which is when you get the gymnastics down and you can do the backflip on land, then you can do it on skis, on the ski jump. Oh, sweet. I'm going to try that in my next conference. Awesome. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jose. It's been great to catch up with you. Great to talk about sort of metabolic adaptation and and some of the myths and misconceptions around that and and how that kind of fits into that bigger picture of energy availability and and body composition change as well. So thanks so much for your time and have a good rest of your summer. Yeah, thanks. That was great, Al, although I did uh, obviously listen to this one after it was recorded just because I was uh, getting over being a bit unwell. Um, But, yeah, fantastic to to listen to it. I'll let you do the the summary. Yeah, sure. So I guess as as Jose talked about, you know, we can use words like metabolic adaptation, metabolic compensation, adaptive thermogenesis. There's a whole bunch of different terms around and – you know, they, they mean different things to different people. So I think it's always important when you have these discussions, as Jose said, to, you know, define what it is you're referring to specifically. And in here it can get a little bit confusing because there's different components to the total energy we expend in the day. There's the the resting metabolic rate component and then there's the, the exercise activity specifically and then there's kind of the stuff in the middle, which is kind of the stuff that we wouldn't necessarily count as exercise, but just kind of adds up over the day in terms of general movement and digestion and absorption of food and all that kind of stuff. So it, it does get a little bit tricky here and, and at different times, you know, Jose is referring to different parts of that and sometimes the whole thing as well. I guess if we're to define metabolic adaptation or the definition that, that Jose talked about and, and what he talks about in that paper that we mentioned from the Royal Society is a reduction in energy expenditure at rest, so that resting metabolic rate that is greater than what you would predict for the change in someone's body composition. So usually you're going to have a change in body composition if you, you know, train more, eat less, or a combination of those two. You're going to lose a little bit of weight. Um, you would expect that your resting metabolic rate will reduce because there's physically less of you to keep alive at rest. And so that's a normal response that we would predict. But what Jose is saying is this metabolic adaptation is an additional decrease in the resting metabolic rate greater than what would be predicted from just the change in body composition alone. And generally, we define that as a, a drop of RMR of more than about 10% compared to what you would predict from an equation, provided you've got the, the right body composition information in that equation. Now, the reduction in the actual activity that goes on to make up that RMR, I guess the, the adaptation part, he's kind of talking about that happening at the level of the actual cells or, or you know, adding those up to organ systems as the, you know, almost like those being turned down. So each cell or or the the organ as a whole is working less hard as opposed to there being less of that organ. So the organ actually getting smaller. Um, So organ size can be important here as well. So this is a potential response to low energy availability, this reduction in the amount of calories each cell or, or, you know, organ tissue uses relative to its size Um, but we need a lot more research in this area there are sort of indications and a sprinkling of little studies and particularly in athletes there's not a lot here we have a few studies in athletes um, but they're generally all short term because really very few athletes are going to volunteer for long-term energy restriction and you know the ethics are very debatable there too Uh, and most of that research that has been done 
in short term. And and contrary to most of the sports science literature where most of the research is done in males, this is an area where the vast majority of research has actually been done in females. So there's a lot of unanswered questions here um, for, for the long term, for males and for athletes more broadly. I think we still need more work in this area. But uh, the effect of an energy deficit um, or low energy availability, which is really what we're talking about, is that lack of energy available for all of those normal body functions. The effect of that on resting metabolic rate is certainly a thing. It does exist. There is evidence for it and we can measure it. But as Jose said, usually in most cases, the effects are fairly small. We're talking, you know, 10 to maybe 20% reduction at most in resting metabolic rate in response to that low energy availability or energy deficit. And since most people's resting metabolic rate, depending on you know, whether you're male or female, your height and weight and so on, is typically about 1,400 to 2,000 calories a day for the, the majority of people. So that the difference that we're talking about is maybe 100 to maybe absolute maximum 400 calories a day, but typically probably more like 200 or less calories a day in terms of that adaptation. So I think it's it's a lot less than is often talked about online. You know, the, the person talks about, I only eat 1,200 calories a day and my my resting metabolic rate must be like, you know, six or 700 calories lower. Well, the, the science doesn't suggest that that is the case. Now, there might be other reasons for that in terms of other compensatory effects, uh, which is where you're talking more broadly now beyond metabolic rate. So reductions in, you know, just unconscious movement and, and physical activity that actually reduces the amount of energy you expend as well. I guess this is a much more difficult one to quantify. Uh, and so it's not often measured and, and quantified in a way that we can have hard evidence for this. So there is a small amount of evidence, but none really in athletes. And I know there is some work starting, I think, next year at the Australian Catholic University. They've just got a metabolic chamber where they can measure total calories expended in, you know, without having to wear a mask on all the time, just living in a like a little hotel room essentially. So they'll be able to start to, to measure this stuff. And I think we will see some progress in this area in the coming years, but certainly I think the hype is definitely ahead of the science at this stage. Anecdotally, there probably is some suggestion that this does happen. You know, you, you hear about the cyclist who does the big six hour ride and spends the rest of the day like lying on the couch doing nothing. So there probably is some compensation going on there in terms of, you know, they're not up and about and doing their laundry and stuff that day. So there may be an effect there, but we can't really measure it, quantify it at this stage for the most part. So I guess the question of all of this, you know, from a practical standpoint, does all of this metabolic adaptation or, or compensation explain that, you know, the person with the 1200 calorie a day diet, but doesn't lose any body fat? Well, it may partly explain it, but it's also likely that the person is underestimating the actual amount of calories they're eating. Maybe it's not actually 1200. And we know that, you know, most people underestimate by at least sort of 15 to 20%. That's not uncommon. So that might be part of the reason. Does it explain the reduced resting metabolic rate in someone who has low energy availability or you know, relative energy deficiency in sport? Possibly. But as I said in the discussion with Jose, often I don't think we catch that in the act. You know, someone has the stress fracture, comes in, we measure their RMR, but by the time we measure it, their energy availability has been normal for two or three weeks because they've had to stop training. And so you know, by the time we measure it, the resting metabolic rate is back to normal again. We, we do sometimes see it low, but probably not as often as you would expect. There's certainly some degree of metabolic adaptation. And as Jose said, that is actually completely normal 
and it's it's not harmful to performance if it happens in the short term and to a, a smaller extent. And the fact that is our body is constantly adjusting this. It's not like a, an on-off switch that you either have metabolic adaptation or you don't. It's more like a dimmer that's turned up and down constantly depending on what we're doing, both in terms of our physical activity and, and how much we're eating. And that makes perfect sense from a, an evolutionary perspective. And, and Jose also mentioned the fact that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes sense that, you know, physical function, movement, use of our muscles would be one of the last organ systems to be impacted because that would actually stop us as hunter-gatherers from being able to go out and actually get food. So it's not a surprise that in the short term and with a small energy deficit, performance isn't usually affected. By the time that happens, it's usually much more of a, a bigger issue. The final aspect to this at the the other extreme end is that kind of constrained energy expenditure hypothesis that we discussed, you know, more for the, the ultra endurance events and that theory that the amount of energy that you can expend, therefore how far, how fast you can go in a day, a week, a month, whatever it is, is limited by energy intake because, you know, energy intake relative to the amount of calories you're burning in exercise, that is energy availability essentially. And there's some evidence, and Herman Ponser presents that in his book from hunter-gatherers and subsistence farmers, uh, and a small amount of evidence from sort of multi-week ultra-distance events that that this happens. But it's still, I think, very early days in this research, as Jose said. It's a very interesting hypothesis, but we need a lot more data specifically in athletes before we can be confident in making some big calls around that. I think regardless of, of any of those scenarios, the overall message here is that eating enough to ensure our energy availability, particularly at those high training volumes. So if you're training sort of 20 hours a week plus, eating more to meet that energy availability is going to be important. And as Jose said, and we've talked about in just the last couple of episodes, you know, reducing, you know, the, the fiber content, increasing the, the amount of calories per volume of food is really important to allow us to do that because the gut may be the limiting factor to how much calories we can get in and therefore our ability to perform in some of those really extreme ultra distance type events. Awesome. Um, and our next episode, uh, so we're going into episode 66. What are we talking about there? Yeah. So this one actually is a, another listener question that came through. And the question was, and I think very relevant to a lot of people, how do I fuel on double session days? So where you have training in the morning and then you've got to back it up either a couple of hours later or maybe at the end of the day, you know, you go to work and then train again after work. How do you manage that? So common issue that a lot of athletes face, particularly triathletes, but some other athletes sometimes as well. So yeah, we'll have a, a nice discussion about that and uh, work out how we kind of navigate all of that. Excellent. Excellent. So just wrapping up, a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And as you know, we try our best to, to answer those questions for you. We love getting them in. So thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you do listen on one of these platforms and have about 30 seconds or so to spare, uh, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. 
And those that have left a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. It is getting there, believe us. And remember also that there's now 65 previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. If you would like to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing, and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. Otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and hopefully um, in a couple of weeks' time I sound less snuffly, so apologies for that. Yeah. See you then, everyone. <laughs>